Well, good morning. It's a, it's a real pleasure to be here with you. Um, before I begin reading the scriptures, I, I don't know how much you are aware of, uh, of uh, the connections that Sovereign Grace has and wants to continue and uh, encourage that we have with uh, SPC here. In fact, our group that is here today from the States uh, have all worshipped with you or with the SPC at some time before, and it's a real joy and privilege and a blessing to see many old friends uh, to rekindle those friendships and also to meet some uh, new people and look forward to being with you today. Uh, Sovereign Grace does pray for you uh, and we are thankful for the friendships that we have. So it's a real pleasure and a joy to be here with you. And so thank you for uh, hosting us so warmly uh, this past week. Well, with that, why don't you turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. It'll be our text uh, for the sermon this morning. Ephesians chapter 4, we'll look at verses 1 through 6 for our our sermon this morning. I hear the word of our Lord. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Amen. Would you please pray with me? Our God, we give you great thanks and praise for your living word and ask, O God, that you would, by your Spirit, use your word to penetrate our hearts. Would you strengthen our faith? And Lord, we pray that if there are those among us who do not yet believe, we pray that you would work in our hearts so that we may see you and love you and worship you. In Jesus Christ, in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. I don't know when you read scripture, if you ever think about uh, the men who were there in those days, men like the Apostle Paul or the Apostle John or, or any of the other disciples or the churches who were there receiving these letters for the first time. I, I like to think about them at some sometimes when I'm reading scriptures and, and, and wonder what it's like, what it would be like to have a personal conversation with some of these men. You know, if I could sit down at the table and have lunch with Peter and John and, and Paul and, and ask them some questions. They were going into a world that was dark and knew nothing of Christ and they were preaching the gospel and being converted. And they were the ones that God had called these apostles to establish the church. Talk about going into unchurched places. The world was unchurched. I would wonder, what, what would it be like for them? And as the church was being established 2,000 years ago, and they would uh, appoint elders and deacons, and they would move on and, and plant new churches, I, I would want to ask them, 
If you could look ahead and think ahead and, and consider now that you've uh, done this work that God has called you to, to plant these churches, and you think about not just in the next couple of years, but beyond your lifetime, what would your biggest concerns be? What are your biggest concerns about the church uh, and in future generations? Of course, I can't know exactly what they would say, but uh, in in my reading of the New Testament, uh, I think that there would at least be two things on that list. One of those things would be false teaching. If you notice, a lot of the New Testament letters are written uh, uh, to address false teaching that creeps into uh, God's church. But a second thing that I think is not entirely unrelated is that they would have a real concern for the unity of God's people. The unity of the church. We see this on the lips of the saints in their prayers, through the writings of the New Testament Scriptures. If you recall in John 17, the night before Jesus goes to the cross, this is what He's praying for. For His church, for the people who would believe in the gospel and have new life in Him. He, he prays that, that we would be one as the Father and the Son are one. And we see that's the concern of the Apostle Paul here in our passage this morning. If you're familiar with the, the letter of the, or the book of Ephesians, uh, you might know that, the, that Ephesians 4 is, is kind of a turning point uh, in this epistle. The first three chapters, they spell out some of the, the great and deep truths that uh, lead us to see a bit into eternity, into the mind and heart of God. We hear the gospel proclaimed. We hear about who we are in the gospel and what the gospel does for us and in us. These these great, high, theological proclamations are taking place in chapters 1, 2, and 3. But here in chapter 4, we are now, uh, there's a turning point, and we are now exhorted as believers, as a church, as to how we are to live. I want to make a note before we really dive in here, though, is that this is not telling us how we earn salvation. So from everything you hear here, don't, don't think that this is how I must earn salvation. That's, that's dealt with earlier. You were dead in your sins. You're made alive in Christ. It is by the grace of God. It is a gift of God, not of your own doing, that we are given new life. That is as clear as can be. But now that you've been made new in the Lord Jesus Christ, what do we do? On the basis of who we are in Christ... How are we to live? And that's what these verses begin to unpack for us. And our verses divide up essentially into two parts, and that's going to be our outline here. The first part, we see a series of commands in verses 1 through 3. A series of commands. And then in verses 4 through 6, we see the the basis for these commands which is uh, the Lord's desire for unity within the church. So let's look at the biblical commands given to us in these verses. If you look at verse 1, we we see in the beginning of verse 1 that the Apostle Paul is reminding us that as this is being written, that he is in prison. He is a prisoner. He says, I therefore a prisoner for the Lord. 
this moment in which Paul is in prison, he will be released at some point uh, from this imprisonment. But I don't think that he knows that that's going to happen yet. I don't think it's a certain thing for him at this moment. He's in a brick and mortar prison. There are walls, uh, chains. He is there as a prisoner uh, in the system there. There's, uh, he is a real prisoner. But there's also a sense in which he introduces himself at this section where he is not only saying, I'm a prisoner in chains, physical chains, but I'm a prisoner for Jesus as well. He's a prisoner for the Lord. Think about why he's in prison. It wasn't because he forgot to pay his library dues and the police came after him and threw him in jail. No, he's, he's in jail because of, uh, because of his ministry of the gospel. He's in jail because of his, uh, for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because his life is captive to Jesus Christ. And Jesus is Paul's master. And so what Jesus calls him to do, Paul goes and do. He can do nothing but serve the Lord. And so Paul reminds us of his state. And, and as one who belongs to the Lord, a servant, a prisoner of the Lord, he raises a concern for his church. And that concern is the unity within it. And so as he begins to speak to this, he, he begins with this broad, general sort of headline command. Like you, you have a headline in a newspaper, you read the big print, and then later comes the smaller print. And we'll see the smaller print, the set of specific commands that follow this headline command. So what is the headline command? Well, if you continue in verse 1, Paul says, I therefore a prisoner for the Lord... He goes on to say, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. If anyone you meet in your daily life asks you, what what is it like to be a Christian? How do you live your life as a Christian? There are many things that you could say. There are many analogies or metaphors that you could use. Well, it's like this or it's like that. But one of the ways that the Bible describes the Christian life is as a walk. That the Christian life is a walk. And that's what he uses here. This description of a Christian life is to walk in a certain manner. I want to consider what it is to walk. Those of you who have all walked... At some point in your life, you walked into this building. We ought to recognize that when we walk, we are doing an activity. It's not a passive thing. And such is the Christian life. We are not, the Christian life is not one where we do nothing, that we simply sit and do nothing. There's no sense in the Bible where we simply let go and let God. If you've heard that phrase. We're called to walk in a certain way. Once you've been redeemed by the grace of God through the Lord Jesus Christ, you're made new, aren't you? You're a new creation. You're not the same person you used to be. And in this new life, you're you're made to live differently, to walk in a certain way. 
Secondly, we need to we ought to consider that walking is also a constant action. You can walk through a forest, for instance. Some of you may enjoy going on long walks, perhaps through a, through, through a park or something on a footpath. And you might find that there are hills, and you go up hills, and you go down hills. And it's really interesting to me, reading Christian biographies, often these, these great Christians in the past uh, describe their lives as, as if I'm walking up hills and down valleys in my life. And what's interesting is not simply that they have joys and trials as they live. We all have that. But there's a sense in which they teach us that I'm walking somewhere. I'm going to a place. Though there are hills and there are valleys, there is a destination that I am walking towards. Think of Pilgrim's Progress, where Christian goes from the city of destruction. He doesn't just go out for a walk one day and gets lost and just keeps walking all day long. He has a destination. He goes uh, towards the celestial city. The third thing about walking is that it's a boring activity, isn't it? You know, sometimes in our Christian lives we can feel like, I'm, I'm on fire for Jesus, and those are wonderful times, aren't they? You know, you get excited, I'm, I'm going to change the world for my Savior. I'm going to move mountains. There is no wall that is too high for me to climb. But then when you step back and you think about your life, you find out, well, actually, the majority, the most of my Christian life is a pretty unspectacular thing. I just have to keep going sometimes. You know, you may not be a missionary in some exotic place, and you may not have really great and fun, exciting stories to tell. Perhaps the best stories you have to tell are about the ones where you sit from 9 to 5, Monday through Friday, in a cubicle. Or you've had to attend a meeting for three hours this afternoon that seemed to serve no purpose whatsoever and felt like an utter waste of time. But even in this, you are called to walk in a manner worthy to which you've been called. And finally, about walking in the Lord, perhaps most importantly, is that when we walk as Christians, we do not walk alone. Do not walk alone. If you noticed in verses 2 and 3, how uh, the Apostle Paul describes what it is to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, he speaks in relational terms. With humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. What he's showing us is that the the Christian walk, the walking that we do as believers, takes place among the members of the body of Christ. Takes place within the church. We need to recognize that before you you plan out how you're going to live your Christian life, how you're going to go when you're on fire for the Lord and do the the uh, change the world as you hope, uh, you need to understand that the Bible is commanding you to pay attention that what is necessary is, is really how you live your life amongst one another as believers within the body of Christ. 
And so does the headline command to walk in this manner, worthy of our calling in Jesus Christ. And so then he goes into the details. How do we do this? What does this look like? He gives us these specific commands to instruct us how we are to do this. Look at verses 2 and 3 again. We are to walk with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. I want you to think about each of these elements here. First is is humility. What is humility? How do we understand what humility is? Well, we, we learn about humility. We see what humility looks like by looking to our Savior, Jesus. Some of you, perhaps all of you know quite well that great hymn of Christ in Philippians chapter 2 speaks of Christ in this way. It says, Jesus, though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made Himself nothing. Taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So if you say, oh, I'm a humble person, make sure you're looking to Christ. Read the Scriptures. Consider Philippians chapter 2 and and other places that show our Savior going to the cross for people who misunderstood Him, who did not believe in Him, and who were in rebellion against Him. He says, I'm going to the cross to bear their sins. I'm going to the cross to bear your sins. But you know, it's it's not Jesus alone who demonstrates humility. It's interesting, we are instructed in this passage to be humble as well. To live with humility. Even Paul, I think of the Apostle Paul as perhaps the the number one uh, draft pick of all Christians in history. Who do I want on my team? I want the Apostle Paul. And yet, just in the previous chapter in Ephesians 3 and verse 8, what does Paul say? He says, I am the least of all the saints. How could Paul say that? This great Apostle, missionary to the Gentiles in prison, in chains, for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's a hero in Christian history, I think of him. And yet he describes himself as as the least of the saints. To look at someone like you and me and say, I'm lesser than you. How do you view yourself? Would you take that from Paul and say, well, thank you for acknowledging that finally? Or would you be struck to the heart and say, no, the reason why Jesus came and died on the cross was because of me. Because I'm a sinner. I'm deserving of God's condemnation apart from Christ. I am utterly lost. what, What makes the gospel attractive? Well, one of the things is is humility. Christ-likeness. It's important in our lives 
in our daily, boring, uh, sometimes unspectacular, sometimes exciting walk in the Christian life. Part of that walk is we need to root out the pride in our own hearts. It's a great problem in many churches, I think, is a lack of humility. And the question for you is, are you able to deny yourself and consider others to be more important than you are? This is not only an example that Christ gives to us, but if you've been made new in Christ, this is a command giving, given to His church. I just think of... Uh, being an American and the, the cultural baggage that I bring with me is I have a very strong sense of my rights. I have rights, don't you know? The right to free speech, the right to, to worship God. And I think about just a couple of years ago when, when COVID hit and the pandemic and we had lockdowns and I, I wonder, did you, did you ever ask that question, what are my rights? Can the government do this? Shouldn't I be able to leave my home? Do we not have a right to gather for worship? And yet the scripture would tell us that as important as rights are, the way that we face the world is also important. But all of those things, your personal, individual rights, as important and as right as they may be, are still secondary to the rights and the concerns of your brothers and sisters in Christ. That is far greater and more important than my rights. Our thoughts are not to be primarily about ourselves, but about one another in the church. Just thinking about how you do this, I think this church probably does it quite well. But you may wonder, well, how can I, how can I help myself to, to, to increase and to practice this? And I think one of the things you can do is, is pick one day out of your week. You can do more if you like. But say, I'm going to choose uh, one day out of every week where I'm going to dedicate myself to pray for another family in my church. You know, send them an email or, or a text message or a phone call and, and, and ask them, how are you? Tell me, what's going on in your life? Was that really such a boring meeting? How have you been lately? Tell me how I can pray for you, because I'm committing myself today to pray for you. And then ask those questions, and then listen, without talking about yourself. That's one practical way. You can learn humility. And to think of uh, your brothers and sisters in Christ is more important than yourself. Now the second in verse 2, the second command here is gentleness. Again, we must consider the example of Jesus, His gentleness. He was not harsh. He was not bitter. Have you ever noticed with Jesus when He's uh, working out His public ministry in the Gospels, in a way, of course, He's drawing attention to Himself, but He does it in a unique way where He doesn't draw attention to Himself. Consider Matthew 11, verses 28 and 29. What does He say? He says, Come to Me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, for you will find rest for your souls. 
saying, come to me, because he is the Son of God, he is the Messiah and Savior. And yet, what he's saying, I'm going to give you rest. I am concerned for your heart, and I'm going to give you rest. For those of you who are weary and heavy laden. In uh, the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, he says this, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. We hear this in the Bible, and we know it's in Scripture, and we know we ought to love this and obey this, but it's okay if you're honest for a moment and you say, you know what, sometimes I just don't like that word meek. I don't want to be meek. That word meek, it's the same word for gentle. It means the same thing. It's the same word, and and it's the opposite of insistence. It's the opposite of saying, I have to have it my way. Paul is saying, we need to be gentle with one another, not harsh towards our brothers and sisters in Christ. Thirdly, he says in verse 2, that we are to walk with one another with patience. And he might, your mind start. You know, the wheels might start turning and say, you know what, this sounds a lot like the fruit of the Spirit here. And of course they are. These are, these are the, the qualities that, that flow out of the heart of a, of a believer in Jesus Christ, of one who has, uh, God has worked in their heart, uh, your heart by the Spirit. Because the Christian who has his eyes set on the Lord Jesus Christ is going to start Considering how often the Lord Jesus has been gentle and patient with me. Again, we can just think back of this past week since last Sunday. And perhaps you don't want to do this, but maybe you could make a mental list right now and think about all the times that Jesus has been patient with you. And those moments of unbelief or doubt ambivalence towards the kingdom, the anger that perhaps flares up. Is Jesus patient with you? He's not turned his back on you. But he continues after you and pursues you. And he instructs us here to walk our walk with one another with patience. And we say, well, Ben, you know, you don't know me very well. I, I tried to be patient. But the reality is God did not make me a patient person. How can I grow in patience? Well, the Lord knows your heart. And the Lord is, if He's working in your heart, He is working in you so that you will grow in patience. He gives you trials, difficulties, so that you can become more Christ-like. Romans 5 and verse 3 says this, More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings. Who says that? I'm suffering, Lord. And Romans tells us we rejoice in our sufferings. Why would I rejoice in my sufferings? Because I know that suffering produces endurance. The King James Version, Tribulation worketh patience. Our sufferings work out, produce endurance and patience. We need to have the faith and to understand, even if it's a hard thing to understand, but to trust the Lord that when you are suffering, 
When you're going through trials and hardships, God is not making a mistake. And He has not forgotten about you. Some of you are, I'm sure, going through a period of testing. But in His love for you, and in His eternal wisdom, so that you can be more like Christ, God is teaching you patience. He is using this to make you more like the Savior. God has been so patient with you and me. And Jesus is drawing us closer to himself. Finally, here in verse uh, 2, or fourthly in verse 2, we see that we are to bear with one another in love. Again, this is a Jesus-like temperament. Jesus-like quality. We think again of Him being nailed to the cross, being mocked and scorned, His back being uh, whipped and abused, being treated as a criminal though He has done no crime and has never sinned, endures pain that I personally cannot imagine. And what does he say? He does not spew out anger on those standing at the foot of the cross mocking him. But he prays, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. Jesus endures the cross for rebellious sinners so that we could be made sons of God. He bears the cross. He bears the weight of our sin and the judgment that we deserve. He instructs us to bear with one another in love. And fifthly, he says in verse 3 that we are to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. We are to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And what is the driving concern here? Of all these things, of our humility and gentleness and patience and bearing with one another in love? The driving concern is that we would maintain unity in the body. That the people of God would be united. That we would have unity. This is the basis for these commands. This is the goal of these commands that he has for us. Unity in the body. So that brings us now to our second, uh, second point, is unity in the body. Look at verses 4 through 6. He goes on to say, There is one body and one spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. This is a set of verses that perhaps the church in in the early days could have put on a banner and just set out front in front of everyone. This is who we are. We are one church. We are one body. There is one spirit. And we are members of this one body. And the spirit, that one spirit, is the same spirit that indwelt Jesus And we are connected because we have one Lord. We have only one master, not multiple masters in this room. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you and I have the same master. 
And we have one faith. We have the one faith in Jesus Christ as our sin bearer. And there's only one sign of adoption. That covenant that God has made with us as a sinner. And that's baptism. There's only one God, one Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And there's only one Father. And the mention of the word Father, you see, Paul, is, is, he really just sort of bursts here in verse 6. Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. He's saying, don't you know we are all part of the same family? And by the work of Christ, by the work of the one Savior, we are brought from outside of His kingdom as lost orphans. And He brings us into His family as adopted sons, and says, now this is your home. And you have a father who is patient with you, who loves you beyond what you can know. We are a part of the same family, you and I, if you are in Christ. And by the work of Jesus Christ, we are brought from outside kingdom of darkness into a place that we can call home. Do you know this love? Have you been brought in from the outside to have known the loving Father in heaven who created the world and ties together people from every nation, every accent, every language, every hobby and interest? And says, I am making you one body. And Christ is your head. Has that happened for you? If you've not known the joy of being a part of the family of God, I, I urge you to turn to Jesus Christ and call upon him. The one who is humble and patient, who endures, who bears the weight of the sins of those who are united to him. And to know the love and peace of God and to have a family that will last into eternity. Believe upon Him. When you look at these verses, there are seven ones here. One body, spirit, Lord, faith, baptism, God, Father. These are things that we all share if you're in Christ. They make us one. This oneness doesn't just happen though, does it? We are instructed by the grace of God. We are instructed to say no to ungodliness. We are instructed to be self-conscious of our salvation in Jesus Christ and the salvation of those who are near you. We have to be reminded of these truths and told to treat one another with humility and gentleness and patience and loving kindness. We have to self-consciously examine ourselves and want for ourselves to be more like Christ. Do you want to be more like Christ? Ask God for help that you would. We are exhorted to maintain unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. It's not an option for us. It's not just some goal that would be nice to happen one day down the road. Oh, this is the place where you are to walk your walk, to live out your Christian life. The house of God has become this picture of unity that is within God Himself. Three persons, yet one God who is in perfect peace and harmony. 
So you're exhorted to look to one another within this body and to consider each other as better than yourselves. To consider one another as better than yourselves. Do this by being reminded of God's goodness and mercy to you. And out of the grace of God in Jesus Christ and with the strengthening of the Holy Spirit in the body of Christ, with those who have been saved and purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ, we walk in the manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. May God give us the grace to take on these exhortations in gratitude for what he has done for us. Let's pray. Our God, I pray that you help us to see our salvation brings us into your kingdom, into your family, that we can look to you, our Father, as one who loves us and loves us well. So help us in our walk to lean upon one another, to begin praying and loving one another well. And help us to continue to do so when we grow weary, grow tired, to seek one another out, knowing that you have placed us together for your glory. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.